The text that we look at tonight, and it's one of my favorite texts, I say, in the whole of the Bible, and so some of the thoughts you'll hear tonight, you will have heard before, because sometimes, you know, if there's something that you love, you tend to repeat yourself a bit. Uh, But it's all about, next slide, Thomas, it's all about failure and how Jesus deals with failure. So with that in mind, shall we pray? Father, we pray that through this story that some of us may have heard for the first time, some of us may have heard many times, that you by your spirit, would take the written word and lead us to Jesus, the one who is the living word, so that we might be transformed by him. And we ask that in his name. Amen. So it's often been said that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded soldiers. Have you heard that expression? The only army that shoots its wounded soldiers. When a Christian gets it wrong, especially a Christian leader, and there seems to be a lot of Christian leadership failure around at the moment, it's very easy for other people, and I've done it myself, to condemn those who have failed and not to give them an opportunity to change, to repent, and to make a fresh start. I was reminded about this recently. I'm involved with an organization called Lead Academy. We work with churches, church leadership teams over a period of time, um, helping them to discern what God is calling them to. And we go on uh, residentials. And so the last one I went to, I was doing a talk at that. And in that talk, I included a quote that I'd found uh, from a guy called Mark Stibby. Now, Mark Stibby, many years ago as a vicar, he actually came here one year and, uh, and, and spoke at New Wine. Uh, brilliant author, brilliant theologian, brilliant speaker. Anyway, uh, what happened was, was that there was a moral failure, and so his family broke up, he left the church, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but actually, over time, there has been this sense of restoration in his life, and we're beginning to see, I would say, shoots of spring for Mark Stibby again. Anyway, I'd, uh, I was talking about the church and what the church was about, and there was, I just read, not so long ago, this amazing quote from Mark Stibby, and I shared this quote with these leaders who were there. Um, thinking that it was worth, worth hearing. The interesting thing is, though, is that when we then, we do feedback, and so I hate feedback, uh, in those, those, those four, anonymous feedback, if, I'd like to know who's saying what they're, they're saying, but, but anonym, anonymous feedback, um, I like filling out anonymous feedback forms, actually, but that's a different thing. Uh, but, but basically, someone said, um, and, and another one of, our, one of the team had quoted from Bill Hybels, and some of you will know about him as well. And they said it would be good not to have quotes from failed leaders. And I was thinking, have you ever read the Psalms? Oh, what about Peter? What about most of them, to be honest with you, who have failed? And I was quite taken back by that. Um, anyway, so I've now found out who it is, because you then analyze their handwriting. And... Uh, <laughs> I don't know who it is. Uh, but, but I do think the church can be very quick to shoot the wounded rather than help them find wholeness. But that's not the way it should be, and it's certainly not what we find in this text today. And so in this passage, next slide please, uh, Thomas, from John 21, we come across Peter, who knows what it is to fail, but who is also someone who is up front and often the first when it comes to the disciples. Uh, Peter... Uh, He's not just a disciple like the others, but he's often seen as a primus inter pare, Latin, first among equals. I hope you're impressed. Uh, And uh, basically, whenever Peter is mentioned in 
the Gospels, he is mentioned first whenever the disciples are listed. He's often the spokesperson on behalf of the others. He says things, and you may remember these things that Peter said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the, wa- on the water. Peter should never have got out of the boat. Um, he says, explain the parable to us. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? You know, Peter is the one that is often recorded as the one who then speaks first uh, for the disciples, for that crowd. Um, he's the one that declares Jesus as the Messiah. He says to Jesus, uh, before they kind of completely knew that Jesus was the Messiah, he says, you are the Christ. Peter is one of Jesus's inner circle, along with James and John. We have uh, Jesus, then the three, then the 12, then the 72, then uh, the 500. And Peter is right there in the inner circle. He's one of the most prominent of the 12 disciples. If you like numbers, anyone like numbers? Oh, quite a few of our accountants, so you quite like numbers. Uh, Or maybe you're sick of numbers, I don't know. But his name is mentioned 200 and 10 times. Though Paul, the Apostle Paul, who we talk more about, is only mentioned 162. The other disciples put together are mentioned 142 times. I'm just grateful that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life spoken about in Revelation. That's enough for me. But Peter was this fisherman from Galilee. Fishing was his trade, and he expresses his loyalty and commitment to Jesus in no uncertain terms. If you go back in the Gospel of John, Peter says to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. We've just been singing that, haven't we? Uh, There are no half measures with Peter. When we go to John 18, you find that when Jesus is arrested after he's been betrayed by Judas, Peter is the one who jumps up immediately against those who have come to arrest Jesus, and he defends Jesus and he cuts off a bloke's ear. Can anyone tell me what that bloke was called? Earless, his name was. But um, that was a joke. Um, But after the disciples, it is actually Malchus, but after the disciples then got scattered in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter um, is one of the two disciples who then follows Jesus as he kind of goes through that kangaroo court. And Peter knows full well that if he gets caught up with what is going on with Jesus, this so-called rebellion, then he too may well be crucified. So he's highly committed, very enthusiastic, prepared to sacrifice everything for Jesus. He is a leader of leaders. And uh, though what we find is at the end of the gospel in, in John 20 and 21, how the mighty have fallen. And so prior to this chapter that we've looked at today, we find in chapter 18 that Peter fails Jesus. Jesus has predicted that in John 13, so there's like this, this running theme going all the way through the Gospel of John. But then um, Peter, Jesus says to Peter, uh, he says, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And then as you go forward into John 18, we find that in this courtyard scene where Jesus has been taken to this unfair trial, that Peter then denies Jesus on three occasions. He denies that he's even a follower of this man, Jesus. And he does that, strangely enough, all before the rooster crows. Jesus knew the failure was coming. So on the one hand, we find Jesus is the first among equals, the leader of leaders. And then on the other hand, we find that as he warms himself around this charcoal fire, that he disowns Jesus three times and he fails 
miserably as a disciple. Peter has been full on, but then almost in an instant, he falls away. I wonder how many of us can relate to what we see in the life of Peter. And and this is why I love this passage so much. One moment we're saying, we're singing, you know, yes, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do it for you. You can have it all. But the next moment we deny him by our behavior, by our words, and we deny that we even know him. You know, when it comes to Peter, I kind of feel I know how he felt after those courtyard uh, denials of Jesus. Because like him, I can be a failed disciple. I make all kinds of commitments and promises to Christ time and time again. And were it not for the beauty of Jesus and the grace of God, I would not be standing here today doing what I'm doing. I'm not here by merit. I'm not here by qualification. I'm not here by experience, but I'm here by grace. Anyway, after Peter's denials in John's gospel, even though we've heard a lot about Peter, uh, in the next two chapters, these key chapters for Jesus' resurrection, we we find that there's this big gap in the story between Peter and Jesus. The only thing we know about Peter is that he's actually running away from the empty tomb, but nothing more about that. Now, presumably, when Jesus has risen from the dead, uh, he would have known that Peter did actually deny him. Bad news travels quickly. And then we come to chapter 21, and we then pick up the story uh, of this close friendship between Jesus and Peter once again. And it all takes place around food. It's almost like uh, before Jesus knows he's going to ascend into heaven, which he kind of prophesied himself, and then the Holy Spirit is sent, that Jesus kind of goes around after these resurrection from the dead, and he ties up all kind of loose ends. And his relationship with Peter is one of those loose ends. It hasn't ended well. And I think it's here in this chapter where we see Jesus dealing with Peter that we can see how he deals with this failed disciple, and that echoes down the centuries to us today as to how we might be treated by Jesus when we fail him as well. So in John chapter 20, the disciples, including Peter, are given this job to do. So it's like the precursor, and Brian was talking about Matthew 28 last week, about the Great Commission. We also find it in John chapter 20. And what happens is, in John 20, is Jesus breathes his breath onto these disciples. He breathes on them the very breath of God, the Holy Spirit, and then he tells them to go out from what they're doing and to carry on the reconciling work of God. But then what we find after Jesus has told them exactly what they should do, in chapter 21, the sun is coming up, a new day is dawning, and some of the disciples, seven of them, uh, it says very early in the morning they go fishing. Next slide, please, uh, Thomas. They go fishing, and Peter is the one who has suggested that this is what they should do. But it's interesting as to why they go fishing, especially after Jesus has given them a job to do. They go and do something completely different from what Jesus has asked them to do. Jesus says, go out and reconcile people to God, and they go fishing. Maybe Peter goes fishing because he thinks that because of his failure, he's not up to the task that Jesus has given him. So he goes back to what he knows best. He goes back 
to fishing. Maybe he's ashamed of his failure and actually he's trying to hide from Jesus because that's what shame can do to us. And he doesn't think he's good enough uh, for what Jesus has called them to do. Or maybe, and this is probably the most obvious one, maybe they're hungry and they just need some fish. We don't know. But looking at the passage, it strikes me that at times as individuals and as a church, and it's not just our faith, it's not just a soul thing, not just us on our own. It's about us together as well. And I think that church communities can also fail and not respond to what God has called them to to do, that actually we at times can respond a bit like Peter does in this passage. Jesus gives us a job to do. Brian was talking about it last week. He sends us on a mission There's a calling upon each one of our lives. There are good works prepared in advance for each one of us to do. God has a plan for you as an individual, for you as a family, for us as a community. Yet maybe we don't think that we're up to the task or we don't think we're good enough because of our past failures. Or maybe, and I think this is probably more common, we're just too busy and distracted And so we don't go with what Jesus tells us to do, but maybe we go back to what we know best. We stick with the comfortable rather than venturing out into the new thing that Jesus is calling us to. At times, rather than being obedient to the call of Christ, we do our own thing. We metaphorically go fishing. We don't let go of the past and move on. And I think we can do that as individuals, and as a church. And I think a question that, one of a, that we need to ask ourselves on a fairly regular basis is this, how is God coming to me at this time? What is it that God is saying to me? Um, about once a month, I meet with a spiritual director, and he's a Catholic priest, uh, lives in Petswood, uh, and uh, we meet once a month on Zoom. I'm not going to see him tomorrow. And we have a conversation. And the conversation is essentially this. Um, what he's asking me and what I'm trying to discern is, how is God coming to you at this time? Now, you might say, well, it's okay for you. You're a vicar. That's what you get paid to do. Uh, but I would challenge us, each one of us, are we too busy and distracted? Are we too comfortable? You know, or, or are we prepared to discern how God is coming to us at this time, and then to do it. So it seems like Peter wasn't prepared uh, to, to do the new thing that Jesus was calling him to, and he doesn't respond to this being sent by Jesus. He goes back to fishing. The irony of all of this, if you remember the text in verse 3, um, these men who have gone out to fish, they're all professional fishermen. And what do they do? They catch Nothing. They're rubbish. But then what we find is that this shadowy figure appears on the shore. It's the dawn of a new day. It's what we might call a liminal space between the old and the new. That figure is Jesus. And he stands between the old for Peter fishing and failure. And he calls him into the new forgiveness and a new mission. And in verse 4 it says, Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And it's only when Jesus calls out to them, as you go to verses 5 and 6, and tells them what they need to do, 
that they actually managed to haul in this great number of fish. Now, does anyone remember how many fish they hauled in? 153. Let's think about the number 153. So I've done some reading around this. Um, there's lots of reasons given why there are 153 fish. 153 is a triangular number. What does that mean? I don't know. It's the sum, Rick, you're looking very interested in this. Um, it's the sum of the first 17 integers. If you'd like to sit and work that out in the rest of the sermon, you're very welcome. Archimedes, who was around a long, long time before Jesus, apparently said that 153 was the measure of the fish. I'm not quite sure what you meant by that. Um, and so 153 is this allegorical representation of totality. Is this boring, some of you? I can see your eyes are shut or your eyes are open, but you're actually asleep. Um, it's thought at the time maybe there are 153 species of fish in the world. So the disciples caught 153 fish, uh, basically saying that, you know, Everyone will be saved by the gospel. My favorite one, uh, this is quite deep, this one. Uh, the reason why there are, there are 153 fish is that actually fishermen are prone to exaggerate and there probably weren't that many anyway. So, <laughs> so Peter recognizes Jesus. Verse 7, I don't know if you remember what it says. Um, it then says, so he's about to jump into the water. If you're on a boat and about to jump into the water, what might you do? Take your clothes off. What did Peter do? He put them on. What's all that about? I don't know. But he, he jumps out of the boat, having put his clothes on, and Jesus is there cooking breakfast. And it's a, it's a lovely reminder that Jesus doesn't need their fish because he's already sorted out his own. And it's a reminder that we need Jesus more than he needs us. Uh, the wonderful Tom Wright, in a commentary about this particular text, next slide, please, Thomas. He says, Jesus is already cooking fish and bread on his charcoal fire. He doesn't need their catch. He's well capable of looking after himself. John, he says, he's telling us something, something about working under Jesus's direction. And the rest of the quote goes like this. How dreadfully easy it is for Christian workers to get the impression that we've got to do it all. God, we imagine, is waiting passively for us to get on with things. If we don't organize it, it won't happen. If we don't tell people the good news, they won't hear it. If we don't change the world, it can't be changed. And then he goes on about this lovely quote that people use often. Uh, he has no hands but our hands. Have you heard that quote? Um, and, and, and Tom Wright goes, what a load of rubbish. He goes, whose hands made the sun rise this morning? Whose breath guided us to think and pray and love and hope? Who's the Lord of the world anyway? Of course we are to work hard. Hear that, staff team. Of course, we are to, of course we are to work hard. There's no excuse for laziness, sloppiness, half-heartedness in the kingdom of God. If it's God's work we do, we must do it with all of our might. But let's have no nonsense about it all being up to us, about poor old Jesus being unable to lift a finger unless we lift it for him. We need Jesus more than he needs us. Next slide, please, Thomas. Jesus is cooking fish on a charcoal fire. When was the last time he came across a charcoal fire? In John 18, in the courtyard where Peter denied Jesus three times. There's something in there about the power of smells. I've told you this before, but it does um, make me laugh inwardly. Um, because smells have particular memories. Um, 
many, many years ago, when Anna was pregnant with Sam, our oldest son, and it's 30, gosh, 31 years, um, she had a craving. And her craving, she used to work in London Borough Greenwich, was to get home from work and into our little flat in Forest Hill, to go into the garden and to stand in the shed and to smell the creosote. And there were times when I came home and I couldn't find Anna. It wasn't a big flat, and, and I knew where she'd be. She'd be in the shed. I think if there was some in a tin, she may well have drunk it. Um, but even now, the smell of creosote brings back memories of when we lived in Forest Hill and Anna was pregnant with Sam. Tar was another thing, but let's not go there. But, but for Peter, the smell of the charcoal fire reminded him of his denials, of his failure. But, but Jesus just welcomes him, him in, and he shows him hospitality and grace. And it's an example, isn't it, of how we, as the church, should welcome in the sinner and the broken. Verse 12, Jesus says, let's have breakfast. Here's the gift of breakfast. And then he takes Peter aside, and he says to him three times the same question. Uh, but there's a sense that he asks him this question three times so that he can cancel out Peter's three denials. Um, you know, Peter said, uh, he was asked, you're one of his disciples. He, he said, I'm not. And then Jesus says, do you love me? Yes, I do. You're one of his disciples. I'm not. Do you love me? Yes, I do. You're one of his disciples. I am not. Do you love me? Yes, I do. And we find this repentant Peter with a broken heart and empty hands encountering Jesus. And, and in that, we find forgiveness and healing. And who doesn't need to find that? Oscar Wilde, I won't tell you about some of the stuff he wrote, but he did say this. He said, where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. This charcoal fire on the beach was holy ground. And, and this charcoal fire where Jesus is cooking breakfast, it, it reminds Peter of the agony for him of a night of failure. But I think it also reminds him of Jesus and his own night of agony, the unfair trial, the scourging, the crucifixion on a cross. But it's because of Jesus' agony that Peter's agony can be dealt with because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus takes away Peter's sin, his failure. He takes away my sin and my failure. He takes away your sin and your failure. And all of it is an act of grace. It's undeserved kindness. As I said earlier, I stand here today not by merit, but by grace. Next slide, please, Thomas. I'm more sinful than I imagine, but more loved than I'll ever know. And so Jesus then, having restored Peter, he sends him out to feed his sheep. This good work prepared in advance for Peter to do, to be a pastor, a key leader in the church. That's the call on his life. And it's a very sacrificial call. Jesus talks about the fact that you're going to do this and you're going to be crucified. It's both a privilege yet very costly 
Next slide, please, Thomas. Jesus doesn't condemn Peter. He doesn't punish him for his failure. He doesn't pull him back from being sent like the others. But he encourages honesty about the failure and gives him a chance to start again. Now, in uh, verse 19, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And he's calling him to daily, lifelong discipleship. And Jesus calls people like Peter, people like me, people like you. We're not necessarily qualified, but he does then qualify the call. At times, we may well be reluctant or full of excuses. We may well have followed, but he still calls us. He still breathes his spirit on us, and he sends us out because we are his workmanship, and he has good works prepared in advance for us to do. God calls people like you and people like me. So just bringing this to a close. Here we find Peter, this failed, reluctant disciple, graciously restored by Jesus. And I think what is true in his story can be true in our story as well. In our discipleship, this long obedience in the same direction, we can pull back from doing what God calls us to do for all kinds of reasons. In our discipleship, we fail. We promise much, but deliver little. We confess Jesus as Lord on a Sunday, but we can be ashamed to know him on a Monday. We can seek to live a life of selfless love, but in the end, we just look out for number one. We say we want to live pure and holy lives, but we find that our lives are tainted by rebellion and sin. We can be so fickle. This morning... Between the two services, two people really wound me up. And I let rip, and it wasn't pretty. And there was an audience as well. I talk about love, but I don't always practice it. But I want to say that in my failure, I look to someone like Peter that in my failure, like Peter, I can be restored. That when we fail, and we will, when we pull back from being sent, when we're reluctant and we struggle, I think if we're honest about our failure, we're honest about our reluctance before the face of Jesus, and we come with broken hearts and empty hands, so we discover forgiveness and the strength and the courage to start again. And what we find is that Jesus graciously recommissions us. Last slide, please, Thomas. First thing that Jesus said to Peter was, follow me. The last thing he says to him in the gospel was the same thing. Follow me. Shall we stand? I'm going to sing a final song together. And, um, and is it just one or two? I don't know. Yeah, and, um, and as we do, if you'd like to receive prayer, um, <laughs> I mean, if you go out for prayer, does that mean you're a failed disciple? Yeah, so we all know who's failed amongst us. Um, but if you'd like to receive prayer, uh, who have we got doing prayer ministry tonight? Yeah, Martin, Anna, do you mind joining them? Is that okay? Um, and if there are others as well, then if you'd like to receive prayer, there'd be some people over this side happy to pray with you and pray for you. But let's just pray. So Father, we thank you for this lovely story of redemption. We thank you that even though we fail, that your mercy remains. 
Help us to live in light of that, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.